Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Story kid. Ah, oh, do you are now? She's gas crack. She's some bure. I am a bound to pick with you. Relax the cocks. I will, yeah. What did a breath that I say? Cause you're one. Hello, how are you all doing? Gee, how are you getting on? What's crack? Nicola here again with another episode of Tis Yourself, just the third last one of season four. And as I promised last week, I have great guests coming to the end of this season. It's been a great season so far and you have to keep that momentum going, keep the good vibes going. Thanks to everyone who listened to last week's episode with Monday, um, which we got a great reaction. And I have another Irish singer for you today. And Eurovision week, obviously big week. We have Ireland in the semi-finals this week and hopefully, fingers crossed, Wild Youth will get us through to the finals on Saturday. If you are a fan of Wild Youth or you don't know who they are and you want to hear a bit more about them, I have an interview with Conor O'Donoghue um, way back when it's season one. And we had a great chat all about his songwriting process, about being an overthinker, um, having a different style, all like loads of stuff in there um, and how he kind of separates the songwriting from the band work, obviously. Um, but yeah, really, really good listen and show your support for them and go and have a wee listen and find out some more about them before they're in the semis. But yeah, Eurovision, big week all around. Anyone in Europe will pretend they're not watching and of course we'll be watching. That's the way it always goes. We pretend we haven't a clue what's going on and then somebody will be like, oh my God, did you see Azerbaijan's entry this year? And we'll be like, oh sure, wasn't it fantastic? And tell me a bit about more about Greece. And sure, look. And then of course we'll want to see, you know, that the UK give us 12 points, but we give them one. That's That sounds about right, yeah. Um. Obviously, Ukraine won last year and it because of everything that's happening, it is being held in Liverpool. So no doubt half the audience there is going to be Irish expats who live in Liverpool and Manchester and those kind of areas all around there. And I have to say to all those people, I'm so bloody jealous. I'd love to be there. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, I'm definitely going to go. And then I don't know what happened. I know the ticket sold out in like four and a half seconds or something ridiculous like that. So if you are going... So jealous. Wave the Irish flag. You can vote for Ireland if you have a UK number. So come on, vote for while you'd get them through. It'd be great to see Ireland in a final again. So speaking of Ireland being in a Eurovision final, being that it is Eurovision week, there was no other person I could get. Well, Johnny Logan, maybe. But who I wanted to get for this and who I'm delighted to have as my guest is, of course, Dana, who won with all kinds of everything. We all know the song. 
you know, because they play these, this this week you'll be turning on the radio and you'll hear this and you'll hear Hold Me Now and Why Me and all the usuals um, that we get to hear because there are winners. So Ireland won seven times for the only country that have ever won that many times. But of course, we haven't won in a long time. So I chatted to Dana all about being the first ever winner for Ireland uh, when she won in 1970. Then Johnny Logan was 10 years later. What's another year? And then he won again in 87 with, you know, Hold Me Now. Linda Martin, Why Me, 1992. Neve Cavanagh with In Your Eyes, uh, 1993. I would not win the Eurovision, as you can hear by my voice. Uh, Paul Harrington and Charlie McGettigan won with Rock and Roll Kids. That was 1994. And then Emer Quinn with our last win in 1996 and The Voice. So... It would be amazing to see somebody, see the Wild Youth Boys get through. Um, But let's just flash back. Let's go back to 1970 when Dana was our winner. What was it like for the Derry Girl and for her to come out of that? She was only a teenager. We chat all about that. We chat about heading into politics. And now she's got uh, one of her biggest songs is being remixed now for the Eurovision time that we're in. So go stream that afterwards. But anyway, here is my chat with Dana. Nicola. Hello. Well, I have loads I want to talk to you about. Um, Obviously, when this goes out, it'll be Eurovision month. And that's, I imagine, every year that is like the big month for you. Yeah, it comes around every year. That that and Christmas, because they love uh, cold, cold Christmas. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of, I'm, I'm really, really lucky. I'm really lucky. And you are the original Dairy Girl. Like you are, we people talk about like, you know, Dairy Girls now, you're original you, how long have you been in the industry now? Oh, my goodness. I hope we're both sitting down here now, Nicola. Well, since Eurovision, it's it's just uh, 53 years. Oh, my God. Just just past 53 years. And March 21st was the night I won. But then I, I started singing, like I started as a folk singer. So I, I started singing when I, when I was about 15. So, God, you're adding on to that. So... That's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like when you start looking back, how much time has passed, you go, oh, my God. But that was <laughs> It's like me. I always think when somebody says somebody was born in like 1990, I'm like, oh, that was just like 10 years ago. And people are like, no, that's, that's a lot more than 10 years ago. <laughs> well, I am so glad you said that because the 90s I hold on to, but you see between like 2000 and 2010, even when I'm counting back, I forget that decade yeah ridiculous it's like since 2000 it's been like five or ten years like there's it's not this idea that we're in 23 years into it yes absolutely absolutely so you were a folk singer first you would have been so young like how did you even know that you were a good singer like was it someone in your family that encouraged it or was it someone around you well you know everyone in my family was musical Mm-hmm. You know, my father was a trumpet player and like we were we were raised with the brass band. You know, we went to every brass band parade and uh, my eldest brother, he played the, the cornet and then he, my sister played the saxophone and my younger brothers and I, we studied piano and I studied violin. But our our house was full of musicians and that's my earliest memory is my father's band He's formed his own band, but he, he played with other bands. Mm. Um, he was a really fine trumpet player. So they would have the front room. And then my brother, my eldest brother, he had a group. They'd be in the kitchen 
And then my eldest sister, she was relegated to the upstairs. <laughs> so I, remember, I remember sitting on the stairs. I couldn't have been more than about eight or nine and just listening to this cacophony of sound. So I was always around musicians. Um, I, I sang because everybody sang, but I certainly, I certainly knew I wasn't the best singer in the house or in the town, except I did win the under 12 girls solo in the, the Gaelic uh, fish, the Duracolum Kill with Istruk and Pat Danwiragum. And I won first prize out of 120 entrants. But that was a total, for me, just a shock, really. And you're too young. I was 11. You're too long. I got a bag of toughies from Miss Duffy, who taught us the song. And I was <laughs> thrilled. So, no, I never really felt I was like an outstanding singer or anything. I still don't. But I everybody sang folk in the 60s, both Irish folk and American folk. Mm. So we would have gatherings and I've still the same friends I had then, thank goodness. We would gather and we'd, we'd sing folk songs and I ended up singing folk music. Well, in Derry too, it's a very talented musical city. And I think, well, every town is, but we were kind of fostered because we had the... Um, the London Derry Face, which was ballet and classical music. And um, so I would take part in that. But then we had the Dirichalm Kilweed, all the Gaelic music and Irish dancing. And I would take part in that. So you, it really brought our whole community together. And it was a very famous facious. So they would travel from all across Northern Ireland and over the border. So you were always like um, a community drawn together. And like one year, like Nicola, if you were in against me one year, like you'd beat me. And then the next year I'd be determined to beat you. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we kind of got used to each other and became friends. And it was a very, um, it, it was always trying to have terrible high unemployment. You know, the men had to supplement the income because there was no work for the men. The women worked mostly in shirt factories. My mother worked in a shirt factory. But my father, uh, he was a barber by trade, but a fine musician. So a lot of the men were raised in music and they'd play in dance bands. So that's how they supplemented their income. There was just music everywhere. Music and writing and dancing. Well, it's not beautiful, though, because music is what brings, as you say, brings people together. And in a time when Derry and the North was probably needing to be brought together, this brought communities from across the North and the South to a common ground. Absolutely. I just spoke yesterday, Nicola, to my first official boyfriend. Oh, yes. And I met him when I was about 13 and he and his brother, Freddie, Ronnie and Freddie, they both played guitar. and. They loved the shadows. Now, you're probably too young to even remember the shadows, but the shadows were a very, very famous group. And they were the ones that backed Cliff Richard always in all his hits. And my sister and I sang together. So we formed a group. But Freddie and Ronnie, they were Protestant from the water side of Derry. And we were Catholic from the Craigan. And we're still friends today. You know, it's 
it's amazing. You're right. You know, when you form that kind of bond when you're young, it, it can just go, music can just hold you together all through your life. Because if you think about it, meeting someone like him, you probably at that time would not have met him because of the segregation between the two sides, except for music. It's what brought you both sides to have a common ground. And if it had been like schools were separated, you weren't going to be in the same churches or, you know, sports a lot of the time. So it was something that brought the two sides together. And it wasn't a case of, you know, we can't talk to each other because you're this and you're that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's amazing to think that that was relatively a short time ago when you could, like, as you say, you know, there was your mother had to only work in a shirt factory, only jobs going. Men didn't have much work. There was separation between two sides. For young people now looking at that, they might not realise how short of a period ago that was. Yes, uh, I know. Mind you, Nicola, it is quite a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. Which I, I hate I, to admit. It is for us, like, you know, when you think about what age we are, but I mean, in terms of historically wise, yeah, it's, it's not that long ago. Hey, like, if, Nicola, you're probably about half my age, but we're not going to get into age. <laughs> we're not going to go into ageism. No, but uh, no, you're, you're right. Music can really draw not just communities together, but like countries together. And well, actually, that's what Eurovision does, doesn't it? Yeah. Music draws all those countries together for a short space of time. We're, we're all um, hating each other and wishing we'd win. <laughs> Every time we see anyone giving England 10 points, you're like, what the hell? No, one point or none. <laughs> how did you even end up, if you were in the folk scene, how did that transform into going into your vision? Because I know now, like, you know, there's the Late Late Show where there is there was your star and all this. But back then, like, I don't even know how people got chosen for Eurovision. Well, in Ireland, they had uh, what they call the National Song Contest first. Now, at that time, RTE picked the songs and they picked the singers. Wow. So they had had, I think... The first time I sang in the National Song Contest was actually 1969. And they had used the rota of professional, very good singers in the contest. You know, the the uh, established stars of the day, most of them had all represented Ireland mm. in the Eurovision Song Contest. So what they did was they opened it up to amateurs and semi-pros and uh, other professionals who weren't maybe as well known, they could audition. So I had, I won a talent competition uh, in the embassy ballroom in Derry, and I was singing folk. And the prize was a chance to record. So I was also writing some music at that time, but the record company was called Rex Records. They were a distributing company for DECA. They, they weren't like set up as a bona fide recording company. But the head of it, a man called Michael Kagan, he knew there was so much Irish talent out there that was just being disregarded um, by any of the companies um, in England. Mm. And they struggled 
to get on any label in Ireland, a big label in Ireland. So what he did was like a kind of a sideline. He distributed DACA, but he set up Rex Records to record Irish artists that he felt deserved to be recorded. So I won the competition in in the MC Ballroom and I was given a chance to record two or three songs with Rex Records. And I will never forget my first meeting with uh, Mr. Gagan. And he sat on one side of his desk, I sat on the other. And he said, well, he said, you are going to record some songs with us. He said, you have to believe that the next record you release is going to be a number one everywhere. And I just looked at this very nice, a, a perfect gentleman now, a lovely, lovely man. I thought, he is obviously a bit unhinged because <laughs> as nice as he is, there is absolutely no way that I could ever believe that I would release a number one. So I released uh, about three or four CDs with him. Uh, the first was uh, 16, was the title of it. And the secretary of the company said, and by the way, they did absolutely nothing in Ireland. They didn't reach even number 1001. Aww. But uh, he, the secretary, uh, Phil Mitten, said, oh, they have these auditions for the National Song Contest. You need to enter that. So I dutifully, I got a bus from Derry to Dublin in my school uniform after school. <laughs> and it was in the, oh, what was the name of the hotel? It was down at the bottom of O'Connell Street. If you were walking down from the Rotunda, you turned, Wins, Wins Hotel. Still there. <laughs> yes. So I got off the bus, my school uniform, and I went and auditioned. And I was chosen to sing one of the songs in the 1969 National Song Contest. So uh, head of flight entertainment was a man called Tom McGrath, a very gifted man, very laid back. He used to kind of chew on a pipe. I don't think he ever smoked it. He just kind of chewed on it. And he picked me to sing one of the songs, which was called Look Around. Mm. So I had done very little television. I had done Tea Time with Tommy, with UTV, where it was just the piano and you're singing in front of it. And I think I may have done one Late Late Show. And that was it. So I wasn't known in Ireland. Mm. I went down to sing in the National Song Contest in 1969. Nicola, I was absolutely petrified. I mean, I don't think I've ever been as petrified since. And we had to stand in line and sing a little bit of previous Eurovision winners. Muriel Day, who actually represented us that year. There's Muriel. There was Sean Dunphy was beside me. We were in a line and the camera was moving along. And I literally felt like I was in a, I was going to be shot. You know, I was in a firing line. They were just mm. going to shoot me. And I was petrified. And I thought, I'm just going to run. I'm going to run out that door. And then I just noticed that at the corner of my eye, Sean Duffy had a nervous habit of rubbing the side of his leg. You know, it was a nervous habit. 
waiting for the camera to come to him and it just distracted me. And then I was singing. But I, I told him later, but for you, I'd have had no career. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so terrifying, Nicola. I know I was the only one in the green room praying that I wouldn't win. Wow. Because I knew I couldn't hack it. I knew I couldn't do it. And then I thought after that, I thought, no, I can't have this for a career. I used to get so nervous going on stage. Sometimes I could sing like three songs without opening my eyes because I was afraid to look at the audience. Oh, no. Yeah, I was petrified now most times going on stage. And of course, you, you gain experience and you learn how to control the nerves. It doesn't take it away from your stomach, you know. Mm. So I, that summer I gave up singing. I was going to be a teacher. And that's what I wanted to be, music and English literature. No more singing. And didn't Tom McGrath remember me? Like just before Christmas of 69, he said, uh, ah, he said, um, there's a little song I think would suit you. And I'd like to ask you to sing in the 1970 National Song Contest. That song was all kinds of everything. Wow. And did you think when he rang you about that, were you kind of like, no, I've given up. I'm. This is a no. Oh, I did. I absolutely did. Because the National Song Contest, I think, was around about February, beginning of February. And my practicals began at late April, May, because I was doing piano. Mm. And the practicals began then. So I thought, oh, there's no way I can do this. So I spoke to my parents I spoke to the, the the head of music in the school and, and they both said, look, you're not going to be a singer as a career. What an experience. Go and do the National Song Contest. What a way. You know, your swan song. Mm. So I did the National Song Contest thinking, I'll never do this again. <laughs> Won it and then ended up going to Amsterdam. My God, that's amazing. I love that idea that you only did it really because you thought this is just like my last fling with it. I'm going to be teaching in a couple of months. You know, you're not thinking this is, you know, end goals. I'm The minute I get on the telly, that's it. I'm going to be a star. <laughs> no, uh, and maybe that's what also helped me a great deal because I had nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't going on there with every dream that I'd ever wanted about to be fulfilled. Yeah. You know, in that way, it helped me. Uh, we were living in the in the flats in the bogside at the time. And we, we had great neighbours, you know, really great neighbours. And, the well, the troubles were just beginning then. But still, there was tremendous closeness with all, all the neighbours. And when I won the National Song Contest... I was given about five bouquets of flowers. I mean, like we'd never get bouquets of flowers, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got back to the, the flat and I put them all in the bath. And when <laughs> <laughs> I turned on the water, there was no water. And they turned off the water for some reason in the, in the flat. Anyway... They didn't turn it on till the next day, at which point I had gone out and everybody was out. And when I came back, hadn't they turned back on the water and I had flooded <laughs> the flat 
two flats below me and into the shops below that. Oh, my God. Talk about oh, making an yes. entrance. <laughs> Talk about making your name. But, uh, you know, everybody was so understanding because, like, it would be rare to get bouquets of flowers. And they knew I didn't do it deliberately, obviously, but I never forgot coming back and all this power pandemonium. <laughs> I stepped into the flat now and I was up to my ankles in water. Oh, my God. And here, after going from the glamour of the night before, you know, I'm, yes. I'm a star. Look at me, I've won. And then it's like, oh, no, my flat is drenched. I'll have to scrub for the next few days. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had um, Mickey Joe Hart on with me um, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about like when he went to um, Eurovision and you know, what the experience is like when you go over there. And like, what was it like for you going to Amsterdam? You know, we see now it's a very big, you know, it's giant show. There's reporters from all over the world. You're doing so many shows to kind of win votes and stuff like that. There's the Eurovision village that everyone goes to and parties and stuff. But what was it like for you going over there? Like, is it a completely different scene now? I I think it was completely different. Uh, I I must say, um, I was up at the Krishla concert in, in aid of Krishla and Mickey Joe was singing there and I hadn't seen him singing in, in many years. What a fine artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, a really fine artist. Um, so I must send him a bill now as I've said that. See if I can extract. <laughs> Nobody really is. So when I, when I went there, um, first of all, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I'd only done little local televisions in the north and, of course, The Late Late, which was a huge show, Mm -hmm. and the National Song Contest. That was it. So anything to me was huge. So when we arrived there, all the artists were in the one hotel, which was the Esomoto Hotel. And I guess looking back, it was pretty, wasn't absolutely luxurious. You know, it was just... (laughs) But it meant that we all got to see each other mm-hmm. through the day. And there were a few receptions. We had like the mayor of, we were just outside of Amsterdam, but the mayor had a like a, a greeting and a meet and greet. And there were some events in the evenings and things like that. But the girl who sang for England was called Mary Hopkin. And Mary Hopkin had been uh, discovered on Opportunity Knocks, uh, it was like a, a forerunner of your Britain's Got Talent or something mm. like that. But Paul McCartney loved her voice. And so yeah. Paul recorded her and found a song for her called Those Those Were the Days. You know, Those were the days, my friend. Huge hit for Mary Hopkins. She was a Welsh girl. And I was a huge fan of Mary Hopkins. Mm. She had other hits as well. So I was just starstruck when I met Mary and delighted to find that she was as lovely a person as I hoped she'd be. Mm. There is nothing worse than meeting someone that you really have put on a pedestal and you find out that they're really not very nice. Yeah, definitely. She, she was lovely. And her mum was just a little working class mother, like my mother. Mm-hmm. They kind of clicked as well. So, I mean, I was made up. I just thought she was great. And there was three 
young girls singing for um, Holland. I can't remember what their name was now, but we got on really well as well. And Julio Iglesias was the Spanish entry. Wow. Yeah. So he obviously, I felt it was a lot older than me. I wouldn't have been looking at him except to think, you know, that's the Spanish entry. <laughs> <laughs> and we all laughed at the Spanish at the Spanish group because they had stickers, vote for Spain, round like paper stickers. And honestly, Nicola, if you stood still for two seconds, you'd be covered in them. They had them <laughs> everywhere. They were inside the lift. They were outside the lift. They were on the doors. They were on the tables. Um, but there was a good feeling of camaraderie. Mm. I wasn't interviewed by any reporter or photographed by any photographer from any other country because Ireland had never won. We'd been the bridesmaid a few times with some very good entries, you know, but we'd never won. So we weren't considered a possible winner. I mean, I was an amateur, unknown. The writers of the song were amateurs. They were compositors in a newspaper, unknown. So I didn't have any credentials backing it up, you know. Mm. So it was like a week, like a little holiday. And the Irish, you know, press corps, of course, they interviewed me, they took photographs, uh, one of which hangs in my daughter's loo, which I'm <laughs> very proud of. It just put me on the wall. And looking back, it was really embarrassing, Nicola. <laughs> it was really embarrassing because... I think like most Irish people, I couldn't take a compliment. Mm -hmm. You know, even yet, you know, if somebody compliments you and you kind of think, oh, no, you should see me with that, you know, yeah. you, you kind of bat back, don't you? Well, I was sitting, for some reason, I was on my own at some reception and this very elegant man came over and sat beside me. And I didn't know who he was. So he was chatting and it was, it was English part of the English team. But I didn't know who he was. So I just remember him saying to me, you know, I think you'll do very well. And I immediately responded, you say that to all the girls. Well, the look of shock on his face, he shot back and he very quickly departed. Well, I didn't know who he was. <laughs> He was only Billy Cotton Jr. who was the head of BBC. Oh, my God. And, I mean, the shock on his face. And, in fact, it was about, it was 1979. So it was, it was nine years later. I was doing a BBC show with Shirley Bassey. And I went into the green room and there was Billy Cotton. I'd met him in passing, but not actually... You know, anyway, he was sitting there with other people. And he said, Dana, he said, do you remember the first time we met? And I thought, oh, my God, I'm not going to tell people. <laughs> and word for word, he told everybody what I'd said to him. So all I could do is laugh. I said, I'm sorry. I said, I, you know, I couldn't, take, <laughs> I couldn't take a compliment. But having estranged myself from the head of BBC... <laughs> I, I didn't watch anybody else rehearse. I knew that if I watched anybody else rehearse, I would be just 
undermined any confidence I had because they'd be better than me. They'd be dressed better than me. Mm. Their arrangement would be better than mine. You know, comparing yourself. I never watched anybody till the dress room. And even then, I tried not to watch people. So that was my week. I remember just walking around. Um, I remember a great sigh of relief when we came across a wimpy. Now, you don't know what a wimpy is. No. no. Wimpy was the forerunner to like McDonald's or ah. well, wimpy was a wimpy burger. And we had one of those in Derry. And I remember we turned a corner and we saw a wimpy and we thought, oh, fantastic. <laughs> Real food, you know. <laughs> so it was just, I don't know, it was a, it was a most amazing time watching and taking in everything mm -hmm. and thinking, I want to remember everything because I'll never do it again. That's a it's a really strange thing to look at what they go through now, the Eurovision entries. It seems like they don't get five minutes to walk around or anything like that. Like they have so much, their week or their few days is so chock-a-block. So for you to get those moments to walk around and take it in and enjoy it in a way, they probably, yeah. like, I can't imagine the Eurovision entries these days get a chance to enjoy it because they're probably under so much time constraints and pressure that they don't really get to see the city that they're in until afterwards. No, I, I would have to agree. And I'd say there's very few of them that are there believing that they don't want this for their career, mm -hmm. that, they, that they're not worried if they don't win as long as they do their best. All I wanted to do was not screw it up. I just wanted to do the best I could do. I would be the same as you in the sense that I wouldn't want to see anybody else because while we don't accept compliments, we also then, you, that's a level of like confidence we don't have. There's also then the self-comparison side. So yes. like seeing whether it's just like, oh my God, her makeup is much better than mine or yeah. he sounds, he can do that pitch much better. I don't think there's anything good to gain from, you know, the comparison until afterwards. When you've done your, you're on the stage, there's nothing more you can do. You've done your yeah. bit, it's over, then watch them. Well, it was interesting because it was a, a newish theatre then. It was, again, backstage in theatres is always quite basic, you know, and we were in a room with a long rectangular table. We all sat around it and we watched one television on the wall. And as each one got up to go out to sing, the rest of us would be, good luck, you know, and it'll be great. And, you know, give them a little cheer, a little, you know, enthusing that they do well. And then we'd watch them. And when they came back, they were always greeted with applause. Wow. So there was really a good feeling in that room, a very good feeling. But when the votes were coming in, I wasn't watching the votes. I, I was the last to sing, first of all. So that was a wee bit, a wee bit nerve. I was nervous, but I wasn't petrified. Mm -hmm. So when I came back in, then they are, you know, they usually have a, some kind of performance in the in the interim when they're taking the votes in. But when the votes were coming in, I, I wasn't interested in the votes. I mean, I, I was sitting beside Mary Hopkin. You know, that was just amazing. Mm. Um, and I was watching everybody. And then 
About midway through the votes, they took us to the side of the stage to stand around another television. But in the move to the side of the stage, a very big vote had come in for Ireland. But we we were all unaware of that. And when we got there, I remember just thinking, I want to remember everything about this, you know. I want to remember everything. So I wasn't looking at the screen at all. And then suddenly I was grabbed by the wrist by the stage manager who said, come with me, you've won. But there was another vote to come in. And I'm pulling against him with all my body weight. I'm saying, no, no, there's another vote. No. And then Mary Hopkin just leaned over and she says, you have one, go with him. And I just, I just went like a lamb <laughs> in total shock. Now, in total shock. I must have looked so shocked. I remember he said to me, can I get you a drink of water? Oh. I mean, I'm sure that the blood drained from me. And I said, yes. And then the next minute I was walking back on as the winner. I mean, wow. it was it was unbelievable, you know. And do you remember that moment? Because sometimes when something big like that happens, it's like you remember the name, like your name being called or whatever, and then your mind just goes completely blank until next thing you're sitting in your chair again. Yeah, no, I, I remember him bringing me the glass of water. I I remember walking down the slope, which was which was always a challenge because I was always afraid I'd I'd slip on the slope. It's such an Irish thing. It's, yeah. like, it's the only thing you can focus on. It's not like you're right to get, you're after winning or whatever. It's like, oh, don't let me fall on the telly. There's a slope there. <laughs> don't let me fall. <laughs> well, well, that was my worry for my solid set. You know, it was like a slope. And and the other thing was I didn't have a stool. Everybody says I sat on a stool. Nobody appreciates how much I suffered. I sat on a cylinder. That had nowhere to put your heel to get you up or balance you. So you you had to just get it just right, Nicola, because if you jumped up too hard, you'd fall off the back. (laughs) And too far forward, you'd slip off the front. So, I mean, it was an engineering feat to get up on that stool and actually be comfortable on it. So I remember walking back on. I was in shock. But you know what I could see? I could see, I could see in my mind, I could see the faces of my father, my my brothers who are watching it, my my Aunt Mary, my friends. Their faces were coming through my mind, you know. And I was aware of how much it would mean to the people of my hometown mm-hmm. because we'd been plastered over front pages with riots and stone throwing and petrol bombs and it wasn't really the people it wasn't the town that I knew so I I was aware that oh my god they're going to be so happy yeah you know they're going to be so happy and then there was oh on the stage there was huge baskets as tall as me Freesia, uh, the smell of freesia. I'd never smelled freesia. That perfume, when I smell it, it always takes me back to that moment. And and gorgeous flowers. And then I was sitting on the stool and I was singing the song again. 
But before that happened, I remember almost the first one to run on the stage was Jackie Smith, one of the writers. He just caught me and swung me around. He was so, so happy. And Derry Lindsay, of course, who must never forget the writers mm-hmm. because, you know, it's a song contest. Yeah. And I know, I know it's always a combination of song and singer, but they were very special, you know. Yeah. Derry and, and Jackie both deceased now. But, um, and then I remember singing the song, but halfway through it looked to me like the, the audience was getting up and moving to the front of the stage. And it was mostly, <laughs> it was mostly all the photographers and the journalists who had not interviewed me. <laughs> they were in a total panic. They were just literally moving like a mass of ants towards the stage. And oh, it was it was funny, Nicola. They were like, "Who's this woman? We haven't spoken to her." Yes. And I'm like, "Quick, run! We better get her now." <laughs> Oh my God. And you entering thinking this will just be a nice little week away and everything like that. And little did you know how much your life would change. Like, I imagine you very quickly realised you weren't going back to teaching. No, I didn't realise it immediately. No. Because I was so close to my A-levels. Mm. Um, and, and let's face it, it took me like seven years to get there. I had already applied to college. Mm. And I thought... Well, I'll go back and I'll at least I'll take my exams. Yeah. You know, and then I'll see what happens. And of course that that was impossible. But I sat till three o'clock in the morning that night of Eurovision. I didn't even get the celebratory dinner. I think I got two forkfuls of food in my mouth. But <laughs> there was there was panic because they had nothing to write. I, I tell a lie, there was one one person who had interviewed me and it was a young, he looked about my age. So he may have been uh, like, he may have been there on his own bat mm. and he had interviewed everyone because he couldn't be there for the final. And he'd gone home with his wee tape recorder oh. and he was the only one who had, had, had an interview. So till three o'clock in the morning, I was in a suite with a journalist coming in this door, interviewing me and going out the door behind me. And the next one coming in and interviewing me and going, I mean, it was crazy. And meanwhile, back in Derry, by the time I got back to Derry, there was, I think, three international film crews camped on the landing. And you couldn't get in or out. It just hit the headlines so hard. Mm. And it was of such interest it was phenomenal. Wasn't it nice though for Derry to be in the news for a happy reason, especially at that time, you know, like to think that any other time that anyone heard of Derry around that time would have been for negative, you know, as you mentioned, the, the riots and the, the bombs and the, the fighting. And now for once, Derry had like a beam of light that people could see the people as opposed to the fighting for once. Oh, you're so, you're so right, Nicola. We, we we flew back into to Dublin. Aer Lingus had a new plane and they put on the side of it Operation Dana. <laughs> and like when we left Ireland, it was uh, two cleaners and a porter waved us goodbye. <laughs> and when we came back in our own plane, 
mind you, with a menu with all like Thornhill, which is my school, Thornhill salmon and uh, dairy potatoes and everything, a special menu. There was 5,000 people at the airport. I mean, they were hanging off the building and down on the tarmac. But there was a lot of firsts happened. First of all, we were the first one to use that new plane. <laughs> <laughs> and then for the first time, uh, a Republic of Ireland airplane crossed into British airspace in the north and landed in Ballykelly. And the council were all in Derry. They, it was always Protestant members of the council, mm. although it was a Derry Catholic majority pe- town. Mm. But they had a reception for me and the, the, I went in a big black car with the head of the, uh, I can't remember his official title now, but they lined the streets from, from Ballykelly all the way. And then we, we couldn't get into the square in front of the Guildhall. So, and the soldiers were there at that time too, but mm. there wasn't the same, um, there wasn't the same conflict between the people and it was it was tense, but there wasn't the same conflict. But I was carried shoulder to shoulder. There was about, they said there was about 3,000 people in the square and on the on the walls, shoulder to shoulder to the steps of the Guildhall. And there was all of the community represented there. It was really beautiful. You know, it was just, as you say, a light in a dark time. Mm-hmm. And then when that reception was over and we went back to the flats, there was about a thousand people gathered in in the flats. They were like um, a horseshoe shape, you know, and all in the middle was all these people. And I couldn't even speak then. I was so tired and I was so hungry. My mother made me me sausages and chips and it was absolutely like a gourmet meal. And I, but I couldn't even speak. And so all the people sang to me wow. all kinds of everything. And that's what I went to sleep to that night, uh, just hearing them singing. And it was and it was a beautiful time for our for our city. It was a respite. Yeah. It's kind of like when Ukraine, I suppose, won last year in the Eurovision. And, you know, it's such a horrible time for people over there. But to see that the European community came together and said, we have to give you this. This is, if it's in any way a boost to your, to your people and to your country, you know, and everyone came together and gave them the votes and it was gorgeous to watch, you know, just seeing them being so happy to, to be like, they can't have it in their country, but, you know, we can still show them our support. And that was like, I suppose it's lovely in a dark time to have whatever it is. And mu- as we said before, music, it does that to people. It brings people yes. together and gives them hope. Yeah, and I think people long to have that kind of uh, standing together feeling, Mm. you know, but it's not that we don't get many platforms to do it on. And uh, you get it, you get it in the Olympics. Yeah, you get it, you get it in Eurovision musically, but I don't know, music kind of touches the heart, touches the soul more. To me, anyway, as a musician. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Sports do. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't do, I don't play rugby, so I'm going to say that music is better. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, now, of course, the rugby. Oh my goodness! Now we 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 laughed and cried over that. 
But um, yeah, sports does give that platform, but music does in a very special way. Yeah, I definitely think so. It's the sort of thing that, you know, you can bond over with somebody from any country or any county, you know, if you know the artist and stuff like that. Like, you know, you go somewhere and you say, listen, I love Dermot Kennedy. And if somebody is like, oh, my God, I went to see Dermot in Boston or Belgium or Budapest or whatever. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is amazing to to know yes. that, like, you know, we come, we have a common ground instantly, you know. Um, but like, I think the the weird side of, you know, your story of you coming out to 5,000 people and that would never happen now. Unless, I don't know what, maybe it would if we won. Would we have the big crowds, you know? I suppose you were automatically a star after winning. And we see that the people who have represented Ireland, they don't, it's not, you're not automatically made into a, into a celebrity or a star now. You still have to put a lot of work in to kind of keep your name out there. And we've noticed that in the last few years. And even Mickey Joe has to, still be a job and musician. He still has to go out and play all the small and big gigs to, despite being one of our most successful, you know? Yeah. But, you know, it was the same then because the big tag that came immediately after the congratulations was, is she going to be a one hit wonder? It was exactly the same then. And I was very lucky that I found a really good agent, an agent in London, called Dick Katz. He he was a brilliant agent. So there was lots and lots of work then. Mm. I mean, for the first, I'd say the first nine months, well, almost a year, it was almost like being on a, on a roundabout. I could be in three countries in the one day. And if you wanted to get a message to me, there was no mobile phones, mm. but there was a message, a circular message board in Heathrow. <laughs> and people used to call Heathrow And then the operator would write out the message and tuck it in this board. Hmm. And that's how people sent messages. And that's where we'd always check that board because we were through like a like a shuttlecock through Heathrow. Yeah. But in fact, the best thing that happened to me was that my follow up record was a flop. Wow. Uh, It was a flop. It had all happened to me. And it was, a lot of it was very stressful. You know, I very much missed my friends. Mm. You know, at that at that age, I was still going to school every day. And yeah, you know, we, we were going to college and we certainly felt in control of our lives and what we wanted to do. And we absolutely didn't feel like children. But because I looked so young, Wherever I went to do, I almost felt like people were patting me on the head, you know, like this wee girl. And I didn't feel like a little girl. No. I mean, I was I was mature. Mm-hmm. I was a young woman. You know, I, I knew what I wanted to do in life. But, oh, God, I missed my friends because we used to meet every Saturday. When school was out, like every Saturday we'd meet in the local cafe the leprechaun, and we'd go down there and we'd stretch a piece of chocolate cake and, and a Coca-Cola for three hours till they threw us out. Yes. Because we had a chat and we wanted to see people come in. And I I miss the friendships. I, I find that very hard. But Dick Katz, I, I never stopped working. And I was very, very lucky that my father, he, ha- he had a barber shop. The reason we moved to the flats was because he opened a barber and hairdressing shop 
in the in the ground floor of the Bauxite Flats, it was all shops. And so he opened his shop there, but with all the troubles, the shops were mostly closed mm. and his was. So he was able to travel with me. And as a musician, I mean, it was amazing because it was all live music then. Yeah. And he had a, he had his own relationship with the musicians. You know, it was it was great. He traveled with me everywhere. But the follow up song I was doing and I can actually still tell you exactly where where I was given it. I was doing something in the Palladium. We walked out the stage door and there was Hank Marvin of the Shadows. Now, I, I, as I told you, I grew up from 13 years of age loving the Shadows. So to meet them was a huge thrill for me. And your listeners can look up on YouTube the, the, the Shadows. They had a special sound. And Hank Marvin was the bass player, I think, in the, in the Shadows. And there was a very pretty girl standing behind him. And he said, Dana, this is going to be your next number one, because all kinds have gone to number one in England. And uh, he said, and and this is my girlfriend, and she's singing on the demo. She was a very, very sweet girl. And her name was Olivia Newton-John. Oh, my God. So Olivia did the demo mm. of a song called I Will Follow You. I will follow you if you follow me. Very nice, like pop, pop song. And so I, I took it, I recorded it, and it absolutely bombed. And so then the press was saying, well, you know, one hit wonder. Mm. But Dick Katz, he sat me in his office and uh, he said, well, he said, no, you can go back home and forget all this and go back to normal life or you can stay and fight. He said, what do you want to do? It was the first time anyone had asked me what I wanted to do. And I, it just kept out my mouth. I said, I'll stay and fight. And he said, okay, we'll fight together. And the next song I released was called, uh, Please Tell Him That I Said Hello. And it was high in the charts all around Europe when the next Eurovision came around. So when I handed on the award in Dublin to Severine, I think she sang for Monaco, I was not a one-hit wonder. I was not just last year's winner. I was a present topping the charts yeah. all over Europe. That's amazing because if you had, just because you said you missed home, you missed your friends, like any teenager does, you could have said, oh, here, you know, I'll come back in 10 years or, you know, whatever. Um, or I'll give this up because so many teenagers would just be like, things aren't going right. You know, drag my feet. I'm going home, you know, to the safety of, you know, the flats and stuff. But you decide to fight and then you turned it around. Yeah. And he was very influential, too. He moved me from Decca to a new company. Uh, no, well, I think please tell him I said hello. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't please tell him I said hello. Uh, it was who put the lights out. Not, not please tell me that was a later hit with uh, GTO. Who put the lights out was still with Decca mm. and uh, written by two brothers, Paul and Barry Ryan. As you will notice, I always like 
to mention the writers when I can. I think, it's, I think it's amazing you do that because I've interviewed loads of singers and they haven't written any of the songs. And you can just know that somewhere one of the singers will be listening and going, it, well, not about you, but about any singer like who comes along and they get a number one hit and there's no mention of the person who wrote the song and you're just like, if I wrote the song, I'd be like, just one time, say it was me. Come on. <laughs> Are you going to kill you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or I'm never writing a song for you again. Yes. No. Do you know, I think it's because I'm, I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. So my heart always goes out to the musicians. You know, I've always I've always felt most comfortable uh, getting ready to do a show, mm-hmm. working with the musicians or routining before you're in the studio or sitting with the Musicians in the studio, I, I don't know, it's it's how I was raised. Yeah. You know, I just feel very at peace. You must, uh, it must have been an amazing feeling to come back from that, you know, that, you know, as you said, the second single had flopped and you'd come back and turn it around and to realise you did make the right decision to make it a career and not go back and go to uni and do the teaching side. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what really sobered me up regarding not doing my which I really regretted not doing my exams until I saw the results. <laughs> and then I thought, oh my God, she got what? I would not have got near that. <laughs> oh, I can still remember. And it's I'm afraid to think of how many years ago it was going in with the leaving, the leaving cert, obviously in the South, going to get the leaving cert results. And like, really, it doesn't make like, it does make that much of a difference. You can find your way around everything in life, especially now for young people. But I just, I could still tell you, I could describe that day and the results and everything I got. I like, if someone said, what did you get in this subject? I'd be able to tell them the points. And it's like, it doesn't matter. But yeah, it really does in the same sense. Oh, it does. Oh, it does. I'm exactly the same about my junior cert and and, and my um, O-levels. Exactly the same. The pressure, mm. the pressure. Oh, my Lord. So you were like, I'm delighted I didn't set those. <laughs> <laughs> I was. <laughs> you're off doing Top of the Pops and your friends are home going, I got this many points and you're like, thanks be to God. <laughs> Do you know, that was that was one of the most amazing things for me because Top of the Pops, it's hard for people to imagine now the importance mm. of Top of the Pops. I watched, I don't remember when it first came on the screens, but... The streets of Derry were empty when Top of the Pops was on because everybody watched Top of the Pops. And then the next day it was all buzz about who did this and who was number one and what they wore. And I mean, it was unbelievable, the importance of that in our lives. And then when I was actually on Top of the Pops singing all kinds of everything, and I remember like hesitating before I walked in the studio doors and thinking, this top of the pops. <laughs> and, I, and I walked in, it's actually a much smaller studio than you think it is. Wow. Much smaller. And seeing, uh, they've got a couple of different stage areas in it where different artists are working. And you're generally with all the other artists in the makeup room, not all at the one time, but, you know, you generally see who else is on the show. Oh my gosh, it was that was, I think, one of the very few things that gave me a bit of credibility with my own children <laughs> was when they realised I'd been on top of the pops. <laughs> I always find this so funny when you talk to celebrities who have kids and how, you know, I could be like, oh, that's amazing you've done this or you've sang with this person or whatever. And they're like, 
my kids don't think so. <laughs> they, just, <laughs> they just think everything is embarrassing. <laughs> and I do. I do. I know. I remember like the shock. You were on top of the pops. <laughs> <laughs> but you have had all these huge accomplishments throughout the years, you know, like with each decade that passes, like obviously everything changes, you know, top of the pops was huge for the era that it was in. And God, I wanted to be in the audience all the time when I was watching it as a teen, like as a young person, a teenager. And then that goes away and something else is even bigger. And, you know, being even on the Late Late Show, everyone knows here if you're on the Late Late Show, it's the biggest deal in the country. That is that, you know. So like yeah. all these huge accomplishments and yet you can you can probably like can't pinpoint a favourite because there, there's so many that have been down through the years. Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. And oh, I can tell you a couple of moments that that have stuck in my mind mm. that I've reflected on later. Uh, I was on the first link-up, television link-up, between England and America. And we were in the Talk of the Town, which was a very, very famous venue. And in America, Dion Warwick was one of the co-presenters over there. And it was a very big thing to do a television link-up across the ocean, you know. And the best newcomer who sang on that program, and I was singing on that program, but the best newcomer was this guy with kind of straggly blonde hair. It looked to me a bit straggly blonde hair and blue jeans and a denim jacket that wasn't exactly the same color as his jeans, slightly. And his name was David Bowie. Oh, my God. That's so yeah. mental. Yeah. So I've, I've always kept that in my mind and how he developed and how he changed and all the different persona that he went through um, in his work and career. Mm. That's my memory of, of David when I saw him like that. Yeah, you're like, it's not when I saw him, you know, making, breaking records across the world and, you know, playing with whatever. You're like, I remember him as a scraggly little kid. <laughs> Swaggy hair. Yeah, and you're like hair scissors. Yeah, and you're like, why is your denim jacket the same color as your jeans, man? <laughs> and and of another, I have another very special memory for me. I love um, Tony Bennett. I think his voice, his singing. You know, he's so special. When I was young, they used to have a show called Sunday Night at the London Palladium. And the London Palladium would be like the premier venue. It's where all the huge stars have worked and all the visiting stars from um, America, your Judy Garlands and all the big stars have worked there. First of all, I remember the first time I stood on that stage, I couldn't take my eyes from the floorboards. Because all I could think of was who had stood there before me. I mean, it was just an incredible feeling, mm -hmm. a humbling feeling to stand where they'd stood. And we used to watch this program Sunday night at the London Palladium. Again, it was like a top of the pops. Yeah. And the whole family would watch it. And at the end, they used to stand on a revolving plate on the floor and the dancers would hold the words and the letters spelling Sunday night at the Palladium and then stars would be, you know, positioned between the dancers. So it wasn't the first time I'd 
played at the Palladium, but I was doing one of the revivals of Sunday night at the London Palladium. They brought it back. And I I wanted to watch Tony Bennett from the Wings. And so I I was normally you wouldn't go in the wings because you could get caught in a camera shot or something. But I thought I'll be really careful, but I just want to see him up close. Mm. And so I went around to the uh, opposite side of the stage from where my dressing room was. And as I stepped through the first curtain, there was Tony Bennett standing, waiting to go on. And I, I was kind of taken aback and he turned and uh, he said, hi. And, and I didn't know what to say to him. And, uh, and he said, uh, may I hold your hand? And he held my hand and he was absolutely shaking. He his he was shaking with nerves. And I said, Are you okay? And he said, I always get nervous before I go on. And he said, uh, thank you for holding my hand. There's tremendous comfort, you know, in someone holding your hand. And the next minute he walked on there and just blew everybody away. But it was a real lesson to me too, you know, that that the bigger you are, the more you have to lose and the more you know what you have to give. Yeah. You know, yeah. so nerves can become very, very big. But of course, with experience, you learn how to control them, but they don't go away and they shouldn't go away. Because I think if they go away, it means that maybe you don't care enough. There must have been a lovely moment in that where you are thinking this man is a superstar and yeah. yet I can see this humane side to him where just like me, he's breaking it like before he goes out there yeah. instead of being like, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm walking out like nearly egotistical about it. He's been the opposite where he's like, you know, you can see and you can go, wow, the fact that we have something in common. We're very humane, like it's a humane thing that we can kind of bond over and that net moment will never leave you. You'll always have that moment with him. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There have been really special moments like that. And I remember too, I, I, I was always a huge fan of Dusty Springfield. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Dusty Springfield? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was uh, Irish. She's got a long list of names, all Irish. But Dusty was probably the first white soul voice in England that broke in America too. Mm-hmm. She'd great soul voice and I always loved her work and we were doing a um we were doing a I guess we must have been in like three cities or something but we were flying anyway to Berlin we were all in the one television show in Berlin and we were all in the one television show in France and Paris and she always had black deep black eyelashes um, um eye, eye makeup mm. um really like the reverse of a panda, you know, like, <laughs> and she, she had also a reputation of being, could be quite difficult sometimes, but you know, I learned it wasn't that she was difficult. She knew exactly what she wanted the musicians to do, but she didn't have any musical training. So she didn't have the language to explain what she wanted in 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 a way that the in musical terms she couldn't explain it so it caused frustration 
She she just knew what she wanted and she knew when she heard it, but she couldn't explain it. So she got a reputation for being difficult, but um, I thought she was a great artist. But anyway, we were, <laughs> I lost all my makeup. I must have left it somewhere left behind me. And she said, don't worry, she says, um, you can use mine. Wow. Oh, that's really lovely. <laughs> Just little human things, you know, that uh, I used Dusty's eye makeup. That was really special. Oh, and one more. Um, you know, Bonnie Tyler. Of course, Bonnie yeah. Tyler. Yeah, Bonnie. Well, I sang in a club in Wales. And the singer in the show was a really good singer. And, and I was the top of the bill and I was waiting to go on and I had no lipstick <laughs> are you picking up that I leave things behind <laughs> me I had no lipstick and the and the singer said don't worry she says my my my, my sister will run down to the house and bring you mine <laughs> which she did and her sister was Bonnie Tyler oh my god yes. you're wearing Bonnie Tyler's lipstick before that Dusty Springfield's eye shadows and stuff I tell you, and Bonnie and I often laugh about that, you know. <laughs> it's like, see, they're right there, like just those stories alone. They're from different eras. They're different moments. But like, I think it's not even like the, you know, the show was like the background of where you were and thing. It's the lovely little humane moments that kind of, that why they stick out for you. You know, you're like this superstar is borrowing her, is being kind enough to give me her lipstick or her makeup and stuff and, and not being a diva about it. You know, it's, and it's not where yeah. you are. It's not like we were playing, you know, the most amazing stadium in the world. It's this person, one-on-one, -on -one, being a nice human. That like, if we all saw those moments in each other, it would be just so lovely. Like, Well, that's what life's about, isn't it? Completely. So anytime you want to borrow my lipstick, <laughs> you can borrow it. <laughs> I could do with it now. Look at the state of me. I'm like, throw it there to me. <laughs> no, you look great. I can't imagine what it was like for you leaving music behind when you started to go into politics and stuff, because it was such a huge part of your life. I know, I know you didn't close the door completely on it because obviously you're, you know, you're still saying, but like to kind of make a decision to go, I'm going to put this away for a while and try something completely new which I suppose is a great thing to try something new, you know, but in the same sense, it's what you were known for and, you know, what you've done since you were a teenager. It must have been so weird. Well, I didn't intend to be involved <laughs> in politics. I, and I must sound like I'm just really stupid, but I honestly, I, I didn't want to be in politics. I, I didn't like politics. I, I saw politics fail in the North to the point where, I wouldn't watch the news anymore and I wasn't interested in what any politician was saying because we saw politics fail, so I wasn't interested. But I think what happened was people felt I had a platform to say what they were feeling and couldn't get anybody to listen to. I'd done a, a tour my 25th anniversary in 1995 and we went all around Ireland and the what we were picking up was that there was like an, a feeling of us and them in in a lot of the like the the, the the rural towns or the smaller towns or well even even within bigger cities, like there was them that were in charge of everything, and there was us that was having to deal with everything and nobody was listening. 
And and so I just I just absorbed what people were feeling and saying and I just used the platform to say it. But honestly I I never thought I'd be elected. I, I when I ran for the presidency in, in twenty when was it? Nineteen ninety seven. I I never thought I'd get nominated mm. because no independent ever had. And that was one thing that I found a a, um, a driving force was presidency is owned by the people and the people elect their president. But how can they do that if the only nominees are nominated by the political parties? You know, there's never been an independent nominated. Yeah. I thought, well, that's ridiculous in the history of the country. How can you be sure it's the people's choice? So that's what we challenged. We challenged the fact that, and we thought it'd be dead easy, like there's 300 or more members in the doll at that time. Mm. All you needed was 20 to nominate you to run. Yeah. We thought, that'd be all right. I think we got three. <laughs> and then the only route was to go to the councils. But sure, we were so naive. All the councils are controlled by political parties. Yeah. But... I became the first independent ever nominated by the councils. And and all I asked for was the democratic right of a citizen of Ireland to be nominated. Mm. It's not asking them to make me president. <laughs> Nominate me. You know, this is wrong. And because I was internationally known, there was international interest. Yeah. So there was American TV crews there. There was British, Scottish, European. So it wasn't that Ireland could stay under its own little cover. There was light shining in. Mm. And they didn't want to be seen not to be doing what was right. It was right to open the doors of the park to ordinary people. So I became the first independent. I, I polled really, really well in the uh, in the election which all the political pundits were excited about. But, yeah, I wasn't into politics. I wasn't, you know, I thought, oh, this is great. And then the people that had, and they came from every shade of political beliefs, they said, well, they'd kind of gathered it together to nominate, to vote for me. So when the European election came around, basically there were so many people saying, you spoke for us before, will you speak for us now? I left it to the very last minute because I didn't really want to do it. Very short campaign. And I was elected to the European Parliament. I mean, it was it was a shock to me and it was a total shock to the system. I was the first woman uh, independent ele elected in the uh, Connacht Ulster constituency to represent the constituency and the country. So mm -hmm. it was it was quite... Um, I think I think my life must be full of shocks. <laughs> yeah, you never expect anything that happens to you. You're like, no, I'll just go in and see what happens, and I'll go home then afterwards. <laughs> sure, it must seem almost unbelievable to people listening, but hand on my heart, that's the truth. Well, does it like you? Know, obviously, looking back now, like you didn't want to be in politics. Do you? Are you glad you did it? Um, or were you racing back to music as soon as you like, as soon as you could? Well, you know, it is really a tremendous responsibility and honour 
for people to actually trust you with their vote. And I think that's the bottom line. You know, once people trust you, you've got to do the best you can. You know, you really have. And so I, I did the very best I could for my constituency and for the country. But music was in there too, because as I walked into the parliament building in Strasbourg, uh, where you went for the first big meeting, oh my God, I felt like 1969 in the National Song Contest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really daunting. And politics, I didn't know anything about politics. And I remember there was a, a reporter, he used to work, I think, with the Daily Mirror, and he was there, and I thought, oh, thank God, somebody I know, and there's somebody that knows me, because he'd been writing about me since I was 16. Mm. And uh, he said, come on in, and we'll get a photograph of you with the, the chamber behind you. And as we walked in, Nana Muscuri was walking out. And I don't know if you remember Nana Muscuri, but Nana was um, a Greek singer, and she used to wear glasses kind of like this. And she used to sing, um, they were almost like folky songs, but uh, she was a very big star, Nana Muscuri. And she'd been elected to the European Parliament. And she was the spokesperson in the Parliament for uh, protection of copyright and uh, of writers, composers. So we stopped. She recognised me because I'd sung in Eurovision. She'd sung in Eurovision. And she said, Dana, and now I'm leaving. You must wear my cloak. Hmm. And so I did. So I was the spokesperson for a protection of music, uh, copyrights, and educating members of the parliament because they they knew everything about uh, all kinds of political issues and economic issues and whatever issues. Very few of them knew anything about music or the fact that when you write something, it is a patent, if you like, like a, like, a, like an industry patent. Your copyright gives you ownership. And for many writers, it's not that they earn a fortune from it, the majority of them, but it's their bread and butter. Mm. You know, it's their life, it's their investment, it's their retirement. So we used to bring concerts over uh, we invite artists, and one of them was the courts, to come and sing live and meet them. Like these are real musicians and they're real writers and you have to protect them. So that was a lovely part of the job too. Well, so like music lived on throughout this new era in your life. You still had this music tantrum. That's amazing because the arts are very important, as we all know. Like we, we definitely learned that during COVID how much we really relied on music and theatre and films and TV and, you know, that period where we had nothing new and everyone was like, I'm now watching reruns of Fair City or you know whatever it is. Yes. And we're like, all these artists were doing like concerts on Instagram just so we could be entertained. And, you know, so it's good to have the idea that there is someone in Parliament that's going, that's standing up for the artists. And, you know, now we see with the government that there is this um, minimal pay that's going to be there for um, artists are able to claim that, that you know, they're basically getting paid by the government for to do their job until they're making yeah. money, which is, is is incredible as well. So music just didn't leave you. Even when you were like, I'm just going to go do something else completely. Music's like, 
yeah. still here. Oh, yeah. My, my main committee was um, regional policy, transport and tourism. So all that goes with that, airports, roads, rail links. And, and the second one was education, culture, media, sports, youth. So that was my second committee. But uh, yeah, you I have to say you you never stop you never stop working. I mean, it was very very demanding, but you know even there Eurovision popped up, because on the first day I was the first independent accepted into um, the political grouping that I that I wanted to be part of, and that year they became the biggest grouping in the parliament. So it was important because as an independent. You can't move a pedal, a pebble, a pebble. You can't move a pebble as an independent. As an independent, you need strength and numbers behind you. Mm-hmm. So I was in a very powerful group. But oh, we walked into the first meeting. There was like 700 members in the group. And I just felt totally alone. Uh, the other the other members from Ireland were Fine Gael, but sure, I wasn't a Fine Gael member, so I was like standing on my own. And I felt very alone, Nicola. And all of a sudden, a group of women kind of came across the room and encircled me. And I thought, my God, they're going to attack me. <laughs> what are they going to do? And they started to sing all kinds of everything. Yeah, they were German, uh, German members, because I, I had a big career in Germany and I'd sung in German, I'd, I'd hit in German language. And I loved Germany. I loved my time in Germany. But they sang all kinds of everything to me. And it was like, oh, do you know, somebody knows me. Isn't it true? If you go somewhere, you just hope hope somebody knows me, you know, and I'm not the stranger. Mm-hmm. That really helped. And I had one other really funny, I thought it was funny anyway. Uh, it was in my regional policy committee. And I needed a meeting with this commissioner. I don't remember what he was in charge of now. Maybe it wasn't roads. It was something anyway. Funding. And I needed a meeting with this commissioner. And you couldn't get by his protective shell around him. Mm. Anyway, he came to speak to our group. So I thought, right. I wrote out what I wanted a meeting and what I wanted to talk to him about and who I represented. And I waited at the back of the room so he only had to go through this door. I was going to be there. Well, he was whisked out. So I grabbed his assistant that was very close behind him. I said, excuse me, could you give this to your commissioner? And he swung around and then he stopped and he said, are you Dana? No, he he was he was not English. I don't remember what his nationality was. May, I think he may have been German or something. I don't know. So he said, uh, "Are you Dana?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "Did you win the Eurovision?" I said, "Yes." I said, "I'm trying to meet your commissioner." He said, "What day and what time?" <laughs> it's all about who you know, huh? <laughs> it's all about Eurovision. <laughs> Like and and to this day, as you mentioned, like over fifty years later, Eurovision is what people. I'm sure they say to you in the street. I'm sure you can't talk to people without it coming up. And now you're embracing that, I believe, with um, something very special this this year. Well, I'm I'm going to be going over to 
Liverpool, mm-hmm. which I'm delighted about. I'm doing Good Morning Britain uh, on the morning of the first um, semi-final in the arena. So I'm actually very excited about that. I really am. And it'll be lovely to be there and, and the buzz of the place. You know, I think anything that brings people together, Nicola, anything that helps break down barriers um, is good. I know it's easy to make fun of your vision, but l- let's let's look at what it does that is positive. You know? Oh, look, people make fun of your vision and are the same people who watch it and take notes and are tweeting about it. And you know what? It's kind of like the toy show in a way. It's like it's this institution now that like even if you're slagging it, you're still kind of like, I'm not going to bed till it's over. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, or if you go and you make a cup of tea and you're like, I missed Moldova. I didn't even know where Moldova is, but I've missed the Moldovan act. You know, and you're just like texting your friends being like, oh, that's it. Germany have the 12 points. You know, it's it's one of those things that you, yeah, you might slag off and just be like, oh, Eurovision or whatever. But you watch it. Like you still watch it, you know, and we're all watching for the funny tweets and we're hearing, you know, um, you know, obviously I love Marty. I love Marty's commentary. Me too. Living for Marty's. I know the UK, they love Graham. I am Marty Whelan's number one fan. So <laughs> yeah, I'm no, here to see great. what Marty's to say. No, he's great. I love Marty. And I I think the fact that he's constant there, you know, it's like having your dad there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love him. I love his drollness. Um, yeah, so I'll be doing that. And then I'll be doing um, a breakfast show with Eamon Holmes. Uh, the day later. And I believe you have um, some new music as well. Well, it's a song called Fairy Tale, which which was a very big hit for me. But it was also a song that's kind of... Well, well, when the first television that I went to do to promote it, hmm. I was uh, flown up to Manchester and I went into the rehearsal and I opened my mouth and nothing. I couldn't sing. And I was allowed to mime, which at that time you were never allowed to mime on on British television. But I was allowed to mime. And straight back down to London and to a throat specialist. And he he, um, examined me and he he told me I had a growth on my left vocal cord. Now, singers regularly get what they call nodules. Mm. And and anybody using their voice, not protecting their voice, like teachers or, you know, anybody using it, not using it well, they, they, they get nodules. It's like a corn on your toe and they pare it away, and but it doesn't touch the toe. So that's what I thought it was. But he said, yeah, I need you immediately in hospital. I was in hospital that night, operated the next morning. And the next morning, I was supposed to be starting a, a, a tour of Ireland. And of course, that had to be cancelled. And therefore, it alerted the press that something was wrong. So I, the first time I saw newspapers, and, and I was in this hospital room full of flowers and cards and whatnot, because it had been said I had a throat problem. I saw the, the headlines in the papers which said, Dana may never sing again. And I thought to myself, that, that is, I'm sorry, typical hype. Mm. You know, I honestly thought it was a, a nodule. But um, then the, the, the specialist explained to me that it wasn't a nodule. It was a growth. 
Thank God it was not malignant. But to remove it, he had to cut a piece of the cord. He had to take the root out. Oh, God. So it was a long journey back. I mean, I had to learn to speak again. Wow. Uh, I had to learn then to sing again. But, you know, the, the biggest hurdle was the fear. It ruled my life every day. I think it's coming back. It's going to come back. And this time it's going to be malignant. And the fear. And it was five years, actually, before I I got back to being able to do, like, prolonged stints on stage and, and um, seasons and whatever. But fairy tale, meanwhile, had been a, a, a huge hit. But do you know what? I, I didn't realize it because I think I was in post-traumatic shock. Yeah. I, I, I didn't really care what was happening with it. I only learned uh, about six or seven months ago. It was it was either num- some person said eight weeks number one in Mexico. Another one said 13 weeks number one in Mexico. And when we were over in Sri Lanka, our son got married in Sri Lanka. And the morning we were flying home, we were having breakfast. And my, my youngest son said, I mean, I think that's you <laughs> singing. I said, what? And they were playing fairy tale on the intercom in, in the hotel. It was a massive worldwide hit. But try what I didn't know. No. But I've always had a fear of the song. I've never performed it live on stage since then. Wow. And, but my brother, Jerry, did an amazing new remix and arrangement of it. And it's been picked up by radio stations in, in the UK. They're just playing it. And they've had such a strong reaction to it. So we're, we've released it as a, as a single, a remix single. And, you know, Nicola, I think it's time that I put that fear to, to rest. I, I I want not to associate it anymore with that time. Mm-hmm. I want that gone and start afresh. So it's it's really lovely. And I'm delighted for Jerry because he's he's so talented. My brother's so talented. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a remix of fairy tale. Isn't that lovely, though, that? You had this thing that was held over you for years, this fear of it brought other people so much joy, but you couldn't associate it with that. You could only associate with that really hard time. And fair enough, five years of like, you know, between learning to talk and learning to sing, like which was your bread and butter and was all you've ever known. And, you know, that's five years of fear. And the first time you step out on stage, the first time you test your vocal cords and try and sing a song you're familiar with. But to turn it into something lovely and family orientated and bring it around again, like it just shows that anyone out there who has any sort of fear, it doesn't have to mean that even if the fear is 30 years old, you can turn it into something else. You can embrace it and say, right, what is this? And that's how can I turn this around? Yeah, no, you're right, Nicola. And and it is like 30 years. And I and when Cherry wanted to do it and when he did the remix on it and when this DJ picked it up I I still had this resistance I was thinking no but and, and I really thank Jerry for this I I know it's time 
Mm-hmm. I know it's time. And there was a gorgeous comment the DJ sent me, um, some comments from his listeners, really lovely comments. But one of them said, um, I can remember what she said. She said, um, I feel my nostalgia and I find my happy place with this, oh, with this song. And then there was a comment from a younger one who says, well, I, I'm a young listener and, and I need this because it makes me feel happy. You know, it's and it is a lovely, happy, happy, happy sound. Thank you for reminding me about fairy tale and talking about it. Thank you. Well, well, look at it's just it's it's obviously it's going to be you know huge now with you know Eurovision in in May and the huge Irish contingent that are going to be over there because it's in Liverpool. Like Janie Mac, watch out for any other country because it must be Irish people there. But it'll be so <laughs> nice for them to hear it as well with the new the new version of it and for you to embrace it, like to know that, like, God, if we, if, if Jerry hadn't have done that 10 years time, that song could have been still something that you're worried about or fearful of or, and it's lovely to think that you've turned that around. Yeah. I just had it in another compartment. Mm-hmm. I never thought about it. You know, sometimes I'd hear it played on the radio, but I never thought about it. But, uh, and can, may I tell people where they might find it? Of course. Yeah. Tell everyone where they can get it. Oh, it's danaofficial.com. And perfect. And they, I'm assuming they can get it on like, you know, the streaming music and stuff like that as well if they want to listen to it. Yeah, so I'm told. You're listening. You're talking <laughs> to about an, it. an internet absolute stupid person. But yes, apparently it is, yeah. Oh, yeah. And if anyone is going to a Eurovision party, request it get it played get text into the radio stations Eurovision week make sure that in the midst of like wild youth song you also get playing yours oh yeah um yeah, it has to be the remix version yes yes the and we want to be able to, we want you to be in your car driving somewhere and here come on and have a burst of joy as a part as opposed to go back to that very hard time in your life instead you're gonna go this is amazing <laughs> yes this is me remixed <laughs> exactly look next thing we'll have all kinds of everything remixed it'll be on the club <laughs> dance floors wait you see <laughs> have you heard the rap version of all kinds no <laughs> I'm going to be in coppers or something some night and it'll be on I'll be like oh my god the remix <laughs> <laughs> that's when you know that's when you know when the kids are dancing to it in coppers it's, it's oh. covered all genres then <laughs> oh well make sure they do it Yes. So if the Coppers DJs are listening, I'll get on to like Marty Gilfoyle or something and get him to do it for you. <laughs> yeah, come on, Marty. I'm I'm really relying on you. <laughs> exactly. And Mickey Joe will send uh, the check to you. I'll get on to him. You've given him <laughs> good plugs. And Marty Whelan can send a check to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dan, it's been so lovely talking to you. I've taken up so much of your time, but it's been it's been just a wonderful conversation. So thank you for chatting for so long. Nicola, I've I've loved it. It doesn't feel long at all. I know. And I don't think we've even covered half of your life. So someday I'll have to get you back for the other parts we've missed. Well, you and I are going to have to meet up, have a nice coffee or something one day, mm-hmm. because I would love that. I, yeah. I really enjoyed talking to you. You have my number. You text me anytime and we'll have a catch up. It's been a real pleasure, Nicola. Listen, you too. It's been great to chat to. Do God bless. All right, Sloan. Bye. Bye. Long. Bye, bye, bye. Thank you all for sticking around and listening to that episode with Dana. As you can see and hear, we had a long, long chat about everything from, you know, feeling like you never wanted to be in music, wanting to be a teacher, 
how she got ended up in Eurovision, the National Song Contest, politics, everything, and how it all came back to her, to Eurovision, even when she was in politics. So thank you so much to Danik for giving me so much of her time. We chatted for like two hours on Zoom, so that'll tell you we had the crack. Do go stream her remix of Fairy Tale, which is out now, and give it a boost. It is Eurovision week. Also listen back to some of her other songs there. We heard her talking about different ones there, including ones that she claimed were a flop. Um, it would be amazing to get while you in the final and get our Eurovision winners top of the charts. Wouldn't that be class? I want to be class to get this podcast top of the charts. So if you are a Eurovision fan, please share it with your fellow Eurovision lovers. Send it on, put it on your Instagram story, put it on your Facebook, whatever it is. Send on, share the love and I will send you all the positive vibes today. What about that? Yeah. Let's send Eurovision winning vibes to Dana, to Walyuth and to me, the bystander. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to leave you there. I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, if you still are out walking or driving or whatever, cleaning the house, do stick on another episode of Tis Yourself. I would absolutely love that. But if not, thank you so much for joining me today. Look after yourselves. Have a great weekend and come on, Ireland. Ole, 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 ole. Woohoo!